Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, recording from the castle. It's the fancy name we give for my home office in the northeastern corner of Durham, North Carolina. Need some feedback for y'all in terms of podcast notes. We, uh, we got back in the studio, as I'm calling my, uh, my little office setup here, last week. Got a lot of complaints that the audio was too quiet. Uh, that is probably my fault because that's the first time I've messed around with this stuff. So I'm trying something a little bit different. We have tweaked the gain on the microphone and also made some tweaks using an app called Audio Hijack, which I use for our Twitch streams. So hopefully that will solve the problem. Please let me know. I'm also talking a little bit louder, so hopefully that'll make a uh, difference as well. Uh, Appreciate those of you who offered to be the new audio engineer. Several of you sent me DMs after hearing that Mike and I are on hiatus. Uh, I'm going to take a break from having the staff for a stretch. I also uh, expect Mike to come back at some point when, you know, his life has calmed down as well. Uh, Only other podcast note is that, again, our Twitch game nights are still going three times a week, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern time. If you enjoy hanging out with some uh, eccentric folks who enjoy playing Jackbox trivia games and that sort of thing, please come join us. We would love to have you. Got a lot to talk about again this week. We're pushing another 16 pages of show notes. And keep in mind, so you had last week 16 pages, this week 16 pages. This is only two weeks of January, not covering anything at all from last year. So you were racking up roughly 20 stories a week, give or take, without even really trying. I mean, we had the uh, last week's pod out on Monday. By Wednesday, I already had five stories for this particular week's podcast. So the police uh, fuckery, the criminal justice fuckery, all that stuff continues unabated, even though you have a new president, the same underlying flaws in our system uh, continue. So as always, let's start with our uh, coronavirus update. Now recall our last episode, we were at 428,770 people dead averaging 3,182 deaths a day with that holding flat. It is still roughly holding flat. We now have more people dying a day, about 3,255. And with that, we are at 452,279 people dead. So we racked up 23,000 plus uh, dead Americans from the coronavirus. And that means we're going to hit half a million in about two weeks. You know, if you look at the data going back from the past year, COVID-related deaths lag new cases by about three weeks. So if you look at the cases that we had around the Christmas time, beginning of January, now, jump ahead three weeks and assume that about 1.6% of those cases are going to be dead people. Uh, it is, it, it's hard to articulate how much we have lost as a country. The number of families that are dealing with lost loved ones, the people who have died themselves, the folks who survived and are dealing with the repercussions of having that sort of infection. Uh, It's, you know, I don't know if any of you have ever seen the movie Thank You for Smoking. It is probably one of my top five favorite movies of all time, in part because when it came out, I was actually working as a lobbyist. So it just it fit. And one of our clients was the Cigar Association of America. So having a a tobacco-related uh, gag movie. It's, it's just hilarious. Some It was intended as satire, but some of it is so incredibly accurate, it, it's just hard to believe. Uh, but there's one particular scene 
where the main character is getting fired and his boss says something to the effect of, I just cannot imagine a way in which you could have fucked up more. And that is how I think of our government when it comes to dealing with this. Like it's, it's really something that the Trump administration has fucked up royally. The Biden administration, of course, is just now in office for less than two weeks, so I can't really judge them on it yet. But it is hard to articulate how thoroughly things are fucked up. And by having so many people infected and spreading the disease, you get more opportunities for mutation. You get more opportunities for natural selection. So you see these variants from the UK and South Africa and Brazil that are more virulent, more transmissible, more lethal. And I'm like, we're not going to be able to get ahead of these things unless people suck it up, put on a fucking mask, you know, avoid partying and shit all the damn time. You know, you have other countries, South Korea, Australia, a bunch of other spots where they're more or less living life normally. And here we've been locked inside for the better part of a year. You know, businesses are getting destroyed. You know, half of my law firm's clientele were businesses. Most of them have gone out of business. They have survived, you know, some of them have survived for 20, 30 years and got undone by this one year. It, it just, it boggles my fucking mind. So sorry for the coronavirus rant. I just, um, you know... It pisses me off to no end. But with that said, in terms of Biden's first two weeks in office, it has been fairly normal in terms of the whining and the bad faith and the punditry. And frankly, I'm grateful for that. It is nice to not have to uh, doom scroll every night that things are more or less as they should, uh, should, or as they should be, I should say. And one of the stories that normally I would put in the court news is actually a political story. And I'm going to give you some pieces from this. It says, quote, President Joe Biden and Senate Democrats are vetting civil rights lawyers and public defenders to nominate as judges, embarking on a mission to shape the courts after Republicans overhauled them in the last four years, according to senior party officials and activists. Democrats have a wafer-thin Senate majority that gives them control over appointments. They believe they have two years to make their mark and fill a growing number of vacancies before the midterm elections where the party in power historically loses seats. Some are preparing for a Supreme Court retirement as early as this summer, with most of the speculation centered on 82-year-old Justice Stephen Breyer, a Democratic appointee. In addition to forming a new commission to study structural changes to the judiciary, the Biden White House has asked senators to recruit civil rights attorneys and defense lawyers for judgeships. Officials who work on the issue say they've seen an outpouring of interest and have begun holding sessions to offer information and advice on navigating the confirmation gauntlet. Now, I can confirm this actually happened because in addition to this, they specifically contacted the deans at the six historically black law schools in the country to ask for them to nominate alumni for these positions. And holy shit, like this is something that I have been looking forward to for longer than I can count because we don't really have that many defense attorneys on the bench. They're mostly prosecutors. The ones that aren't prosecutors typically are big law corporate attorneys or they've worked as clerks and have absolutely no trial experience. It has been a long, long fucking time. We're talking decades when there was a meaningful number of defense-oriented lawyers on the bench. We really don't have a fourth, fifth, sixth, or eighth amendment because of the fact prosecutors have been handling the judges for the better part of my lifetime. And the thought that Joe Biden who, I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't vote for him in the primary. I endorsed Elizabeth Warren because I thought Joe Biden was too, uh, too conservative, especially on criminal justice-related issues. The thought that he could become the president 
that finally reorients some of the judiciary, it frankly just excites the fuck out of me. I'm tickled. I am tickled pink. So I, am, I, I wish him the best. If I can do anything to support his colleagues, I will do it because I would love to finally see some juridical balance. You know, not just Republican-Democrat balance. Like both Republicans and Democrats love nominating prosecutors. It makes me fucking sick. I have prosecutors who I consider dear friends who actually have their heads screwed on straight. But if you look at some of the people who've been on the bench, especially at the federal level, especially in places here in North Carolina, I'm not going to name any names because I have cases in front of some of them. Like they're just very hardcore. Whatever police do is fine. And that is not at all how the Constitution is oriented. You go read the Bill of Rights. If you take each clause as a separate liberty, more than half of the liberties identified in the Bill of Rights make it harder to investigate, harder to arrest, harder to prosecute, harder to convict, harder to sentence people engaged in crimes. That is how our system is designed. It is designed to constrain the government. And instead, we've relied on judges to just you know, interpret those rights away so they don't exist anymore. And if Biden can fix that, God bless him. So speaking of court news, the Eighth Circuit has denied qualified immunity to a police officer who fired tear gas at reporters. Now, a lot of you, I suspect, are going to think this relates to last summer's protests because everyone saw this stuff happen on camera just last year. You would be wrong. This is actually from the Mike Brown protests in 2014 when Black Lives Matter first became a movement six years ago. So I'm going to read you some snippets from this opinion. It's fairly long. I'm going to give you a link to the whole thing. But in the, in the factual background section, the court says, quote, on August 9th of 2014, amid public unrest and protests, St. Louis County requested assistance from the St. Charles County Regional SWAT team. Officer Anderson was a member of that SWAT team. On August 13th, three Al Jazeera reporters were covering the protests. For a live broadcast, they turned on their camera at 9.24 p.m., recording most of the summary judgment-related facts. At least three other videos recorded the scene. Now, I'm going to pause here, because bear in mind, it took six years to get to this point where there was a trial court-level denial of qualified immunity, and now it's on appeal to the Eighth Circuit. Now, imagine how qualified immunity plays out in the context of, for example, technology, where law enforcement has tools at its disposal today that didn't even exist six years ago. They can violate your rights today. Look at, for example, Clearview AI. We've talked about them before, the facial recognition technology used by places like New Orleans. Total violation of constitutional rights. That company didn't even exist until just three years ago. So for the violations that they did in 2017, we're not going to see the first uh, opinions on qualified immunity until probably 2023. At that point, they're going to say it's not clearly established, got to try again. And it's going to be some years later until you get to the point where a right is clearly established and qualified immunity is denied. And by whatever time that happens, there will be new technologies that were not in existence in 2023 that are now being used to violate your rights. This is why the entire doctrine of qualified immunity is so insidious. Because the stuff that police get to use evolves so much faster than the case law. Our judicial branch is underfunded compared to the legislature and the executive. It takes a long-ass time for these cases to get handled. 
And because of how qualified immunity works, where you have multiple cases that have to take place before a right is ever clearly established for qualified immunity to get denied, you are perpetually playing catch up. The case law will never catch up to the technology. And it's why the doctrine needs to be abolished. So sorry for that segue. Continuing from the opinion, they say, quote, the SWAT team approached the reporters as they prepared their live broadcast a block and a half from the street where most of the protests occurred. Their video shows a calm scene. An unidentified officer begins shooting rubber bullets at them. The reporters yell, identifying themselves as reporters. Officer Anderson then deploys a single canister of CS gas, also known as tear gas. It lands in front of the reporters. They move away from the camera, but can be heard talking in the background. An unidentified person walks past the camera. Other people stop in front of it. The police do not fire at them. One reporter reappears in front of the camera, is shot at, and leaves. Another person walks past the camera, possibly the same unidentified person as before. A second group poses in front of the camera, thinking they are on CNN. That group talked to the camera for over two minutes. Minutes later, police deploy another canister of tear gas at men standing on the corner, several feet from the camera. Over a speaker, the SWAT team appears to ask the reporters to, subquote, turn the spotlight off. SWAT team members, they then lay down the lights and turn the camera lens toward the ground. So this is SWAT team members. I would, I would assume this is actually the reporters. This might be a typo in their opinion. The reporters reappear after speaking to the officers. They pack their equipment and leave. I'm wrong. Okay, so apparently it is the SWAT team members who got to the camera and took it down, and then the reporters showed up to talk to them. Uh, the parties dispute some facts about the encounter. Now, I love this particular line because, remember, all of this shit is on video. The idea that parties can dispute things on video is just fucking mind-boggling. So Officer Anderson claims the reporters were told to disperse and turn off the lights, but they refused. He also claims he saw projectiles launched from the area of the bright lights. He says he had difficulty seeing what was going on. He believes there was an intimate threat to safety. He stresses that his sergeant ordered him to deploy the tear gas. Before the SWAT team arrived, the reporters counter that their location was a calm scene. The video supports this. No records of any kind indicate orders to disperse, and that includes the video. They also do not show any projectiles thrown from the reporter's area. They do not show orders to turn off the light before Anderson deployed the tear gas. That is a very nice court of appeals way of saying the cops lied under oath as part of their testimony. You know, as part of their affidavits, depositions, and everything else, the cops were fucking lying because what actually happened is recorded on the video. So the trial court continues. They note that the, uh, or the appellate court rather continues. They note the trial court denied qualified immunity. And they're going through the explanation of how this all works. And they pick up saying, quote, if Anderson had a mistaken but objectively reasonable belief that the reporters had committed a criminal offense, the reporters lose. Anderson argues he had arguable probable cause to believe the reporters were committing three crimes, refusing to disperse, obstructing officers performing their duties, and interfering with officers in a way that impacted officer safety. It is disputed whether officers gave directions to disperse before Anderson deployed the CS canister, whether projectiles flew toward him from the area of the lights, and whether the reporters ignored orders to turn off their lights. I'm going to note for those of you who are not lawyers, when you have factual discrepancies like this, this is what trials are for. So when someone files a motion for summary judgment, what the court is looking at is whether there is a dispute as to a material fact. If the facts are clear, they're not in dispute, a judge can decide who wins as a matter of law automatically. But if you're in a situation where the facts are disputed, as they pretty clearly are here, 
then what you do is you send it to a jury. The fact finder decides what actually happened. So the court continues, quote, the videos confirm the reporter's version of the facts. They do not show dispersal orders or flying projectiles. They do not show orders to turn off the lights before the tear gas. Rather, they show a peaceful scene interrupted by rubber bullets and tear gas. Officer Anderson presumes disputed facts in his favor, which this court cannot do because he moved for summary judgment. Taking the facts most favorably to the reporters, Anderson did not have arguable probable cause to use the tear gas. Anderson insists at length that the material facts are those he alone perceived. And there's a parenthetical here where they're citing a case where under the qualified immunity doctrine, all that matters is the perceptions of a reasonable officer. Another one of the various ways where our Supreme Court has completely fucked this doctrine all to hell as a way of protecting police from the consequences of their bad decisions. Court continues, quote, however, the court is not limited to only facts provided by Officer Anderson. A court may consider other evidence to determine what a reasonable officer would have perceived. It is disputed whether the SWAT team gave dispersal orders, whether there were projectiles, and whether they ordered the reporters to turn off their lights before deploying the tear gas. Anderson cannot use a mistake of fact to claim arguable, arguable probable cause. So again, we'll give you the... the uh, opinion, so you can read it all. It goes on quite a bit from there because there are other claims. One was whether or not it was a First Amendment violation. One was whether or not the use of uh, tear gas constitutes a seizure. So there's a bunch of other stuff. We will give you the link in the show notes. Make sure to check it out. In general research news, NPR has done an analysis discovering that, yes, in fact, water is wet, and this relates to the police executions of unarmed minorities. From that story, it says, quote, The deadly shootings of unarmed black men and women by police officers in the United States have increasingly garnered worldwide attention over the last few years. The 2014 killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, sparked a week of protests that catapulted the Black Lives Matter movement into the national spotlight. Since then, tens of thousands of people across the country have taken to the streets to protest police brutality of blacks by mostly white officers. Since 2015, police officers have fatally shot at least 135 unarmed black men and women nationwide, an NPR investigation has found. NPR reviewed police, court, and other records to examine the details of the cases. At least 75% of the officers who fired were white. The latest one happened this month in Colleen, Texas, when Patrick Warren Sr., 52, was fatally shot by an officer responding to a mental health call. I'm going to side note, we have that later on in this particular episode. For at least 15 of the officers, the shootings were not their first or their last, NPR found. They have been involved in two, sometimes three, sometimes more shootings, often deadly and without consequences. Those who study deadly force by police say it's unusual for officers to be involved in any shootings at all. Subquote, many officers will go their entire career without shooting, sometimes without pulling their gun out at all, said Peter Scharf, a criminologist and professor in the School of Public Health at Louisiana State University and co-author of The Badge and the Bullet, Police Use of Deadly Force. Subquote, it's rare. Not every law enforcement agency releases detailed information about police shootings. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department and the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department, for example, both refused to release specifics, such as officer names or their race, citing open investigations. Still, NPR reviewed thousands of pages of job applications, personnel records, use of force reports, citizen complaints, court records, lawsuits, news releases, witness statements, and local and state police investigative reports to examine the backgrounds of the officers and analyze details of each shooting. We also interviewed use of force experts, criminologists, police, lawyers, prosecutors, and relatives of victims. 
They go on, this is a very long read, by the way, so I'm only giving you snippets of it. We'll give you a link in the show notes, but they highlight some key findings. It says, quote, among NPR's other findings, at least six officers had troubled pasts before being hired into police departments, including drug use and domestic violence convictions. One officer had been fired from another law enforcement agency, and at least two others were forced out. Several officers were convicted of crimes while on the force, such as battery, resisting, and obstructing, but kept their jobs anyway. In one instance, officials in a tiny Louisiana parish repeatedly fired and rehired a deputy who got into trouble with the law three times over 30 years, records show. More than two dozen officers have racked up citizen complaints or use of force incidents. A Fort Lauderdale, Florida police officer had 82 reviews over use of force incidents, but was never found in violation. I'm going to pause. That guy was in the police brutality mega threat. He's the one that pushed a female reporter to the ground when she wasn't doing anything. She was on her knees with her hands up. A Vineland, New Jersey officer had more than three dozen use of force incidents over a five-year period. Several officers have violated their department's own policies and been cited for ethics violations, including a Hollywood, Florida officer accused of trying to steer business to his company and an Arizona state trooper accused of misuse of state property. The killings have led to at least 30 judgments and settlements totaling more than $142 million, records show. Dozens of lawsuits and claims are pending. So it goes on from there. We'll give you a link, but ponder that for a minute. You know, $142 million just over the past few years, just from the ones we know about that did not get qualified immunity. That's a fuckload of money. Every single taxpayer in every jurisdiction is paying tax money to bail out the police when they fuck up. Police don't have to carry malpractice insurance. They don't have to do anything but go around and shoot people. You pay for their hiring, you pay for their training, you pay for their equipment, you pay for their pension, you pay for their salary, and when they fuck up, you pay for their wrongful death judgments. Uh, In state-by-state criminal justice fuckery, starting out in California again, in Oakland, we have police criming on state-issued cell phones, which of course is stupid. From that story, it says, quote, KTVU has learned that the Oakland Police Department has seized as many as 100 city-owned, sorry, not state-owned, city-owned phones belonging to officers who are part of its crime reduction teams. Sources close to the department say it has to do with officers accused of making controversial comments on a now-deleted Instagram page that had the handle, quote, crime reduction team. Subquote, it's very disturbing that anyone would post this because of the sort of sexist, racist, and sexualized imagery, said Darwin Bond Graham, the news editor of Oakland Side. Bond Graham broke the story about the Instagram account and reported that it may have been run by an Oakland officer. In one meme, birds representing officers react to a newly hired female police recruit. The birds respond by saying, mine, mine, mine. I don't know if any of you have seen that movie. It's, it's a funny scene, not in this particular context. Uh, Another post seems to ridicule reporting use of force by fellow officers. A little girl represents an officer and shrugs after a sergeant asks, all right, who witnessed the use of force? It was a similar response after Oakland side reported that officers liked pro-President Trump and far-right comments made by a former Oakland officer who was present during the Capitol siege. So we'll give you that link. There's more from there. But, you know, doing that sort of thing on your taxpayer-funded cell phone is pretty fucking stupid. Over in San Diego, California, we have the first rule of Fisk. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when being recorded. There, an officer is now charged with murder for shooting a guy in the back. From that story, it says, quote, Video footage shown in court Tuesday depicts the moment a sheriff's deputy fatally shot an RSD who escaped from a park ranger's patrol car outside the downtown jail in San Diego last spring. 
The footage was played during a preliminary hearing for Aaron Russell, 24, who has pleaded not guilty to a charge of murder in the May 1 death of Nicholas Bills. Prosecutors contend that Russell committed second-degree murder. According to police and prosecutors, Bills, 36, slipped free from a handcuff and scrambled from the car in front of the Sallyport at the Central Jail near the intersection of Front and B Streets. Russell was headed into work at the jail when he saw Bills jump out of the car and attempt to run away. Footage shows Russell opening fire, gun in his right hand, lunch bag in his left as a park ranger chased Bills. Their surveillance footage was from a smart streetlight camera in downtown San Diego. Russell is the first law enforcement officer in California to be charged with murder since the state raised the standards for when peace officers can use deadly force. As of January 2020, such force is permissible only when, subquote, necessary, when a life is in imminent danger and non-lethal methods are not available, the law states. Previously, deadly force had been allowed as long as it was reasonable. Russell fired five shots as Bills ran away, the prosecutor said at Russell's arraignment in July. Bills was struck at least four times, including a bullet that entered the left side of his back and struck a lung and his heart. After Bills was shot, he collapsed near a tree. According to an affidavit in support of his arrest, Russell holstered his gun, put on his mask, took out his taser, and pointed it at Bills instead. Uh, story continues further down. The mother notes that Bills had schizophrenia and was terrified of police. So the thing you do is you exterminate them. That is what our government does these days. Uh, down in Florida, Florida has had some wild shit going on, and it was back to back to back. So we're going to start with two different stories in Osceola County. The first one is a fifth rule of Fisk. When people say blue lives matter, they don't mean the dark blue ones. From that story, it says, quote, One of the pillars of Marco Lopez's platform in his 2016 and 2020 campaigns for Osceola County Sheriff was the promise of increased diversity and a mostly white agency that polices a community that is majority Hispanic. Lopez's upset win over incumbent Sheriff Russ Gibson in August's Democratic primary came as that message was especially relevant amid nationwide uprisings against police brutality and systemic racism, a reckoning that brought heightened scrutiny of disproportionately white law enforcement agencies and their policing of communities of color. Subquote, I'm a firm believer. If you don't look like the people you serve, you're never going to create that transparency and present that accountability for our community, Lopez told the Orlando Sentinel editorial board, which endorsed him in the primary and the general election. Gibson's administration right now, there's probably four or five minority administrators, one female. We should at least uh, have 60% minority based, Lopez says. But a roster of now Sheriff Lopez's sworn command staff obtained by the Sentinel revealed there is only one Hispanic captain or major, two fewer than his predecessor, and only one woman. The rest are all white men, many of whom have been at the Osceola County Sheriff's Office for decades. So this goes into further depth. I'm just giving this to you as the, uh, the table setting, if you will, for the next story, which is also in Osceola County, the first rule of Fisk. Again, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. That is the first rule. And from there, it says, quote, a violent video of a cop slamming a black female student to the ground and seemingly knocking her unconscious is raising serious questions about the level of force used. 
The video was shot Tuesday at Liberty High School in Osceola, Florida. You could see a young woman, allegedly a student, with her hands behind her back as a deputy slams her to the ground. There was a loud bang as the girl's head slammed to the concrete, and she appears to be immediately knocked out cold. It's unclear why the Osceola Sheriff's deputy was at the school or what led up to the deputy's involvement. The Sheriff's Department would only tell us the incident is under investigation. One person who posted the video said, subquote, this girl was already separated and under control by one of the faculty members when the officer came out of nowhere, picked her up, and body slammed her head first onto the concrete. Now, we're going to note this. We don't know why he was there thing. We do know why he was there. He is what's called a school resource officer. That is the fancy, nice name we give to cops who are stationed at school. His name is Ethan Fournier. And he is, there are at least two videos that we know of where you can see this. I'm going to link the both of them to you in the show notes. And what you can see is that there's an older guy with a faculty lanyard on who has the girl restrained. And Officer Fournier picks her up, slams her to the concrete, knocks her out. It is completely inappropriate. He needs to be fired and prosecuted, but we'll see what happens. So that is the first one from that particular high school. The very next day, not even a 24-hour total time span between the two, In Lake County, we have the first rule of Fisk again, where it says, quote, the Lake County school resource officer, pause, a cop in a school, who took down a student on campus with a taser is not facing any discipline. Instead, the student is the one facing disciplinary action. Video taken inside a Eustis High School cafeteria on the ninth grade campus on Tuesday afternoon shows a school resource officer using a taser on a student, sending her to the ground. According to a report from the Lake County Sheriff's Office, the incident started as a fight between two students. The deputy said he approached the student and then she attacked him, punching him several times in the face and kneeing him in the side. In the video, you can see the moment the deputy gets his taser out and fires it at the student. She falls to the ground while students stand all around. Deputies and students told Channel 9 the student was very angry and trying to attack a boy. When the deputy stepped in to help, they said she refused to calm down and started taking swings at the deputy. On Thursday, the Lake County Sheriff's Office released additional videos showing the student taking swings. After they fell to the ground, she continued to strike the deputy. After they got back up and the girl wouldn't comply with the officer's commands, he used the taser. The sheriff's office said the officer did everything by the book and he tried to take her to the ground without hurting her. Here's the problem with this story. Calling this everything by the book is the fucking problem. Because you can see on video the girl is clearly unarmed, clearly several feet away from the officer, clearly backing away, and clearly has her hands raised. At that point, there's no longer a reason to fire the taser no matter what she did to piss you off beforehand. This entire story from this particular media outlet is really just a regurgitation of the cop's press release on it. Now I get, maybe the girl fucked up and needs detention or something for fighting with another boy. Maybe she needs detention for hitting that particular officer. But that precise moment in time, captured on video by all indications not disputed she is unarmed hands in the air at a distance backing away cop shoots her with a taser anyway that is the entire fucking problem we should not have any form of cops anywhere in any schools period going over to georgia we have several stories we'll start in dalton where a Congress critter decided to try and have reporters arrested for asking questions during a question-and-answer session of a town hall. From that story, it says, quote, Reporter Meredith Aldis of local NBC station WRCB was threatened with arrest and ejected from a town hall for asking Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> I just noticed in this particular article, you know how they usually have R-GA or D-GA 
Uh, this particular article put Q-GA because, of course, Representative Green is a QAnon nut job. Uh, I just now caught that, which is why I'm laughing. Uh, asked Marjorie Taylor Greene, QGA, about recently reported social media posts showing approval for the assassinations of prominent Democrats, as well as videos of the Congresswoman harassing Parkland massacre survivor David Hogg following that attack. Aldous and her crew covered Greene's Wednesday night town hall in Dalton, Georgia. When the Q&A portion began, Aldous tried to ask Greene about CNN's reporting on social media posts in which Greene endorsed the assassinations of Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, former President Barack Obama, and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, as well as about videos showing Greene harassing Mr. Hogg. Greene refused to answer, and Aldous tweeted that she was threatened with arrest by sheriff's deputies and thrown out of the event. Now, I need someone who's better at First Amendment law than I am to weigh in on this, because this sort of sounds like a content-based restriction on speech to me. If you're opening a town hall to certain people, and the media ends up being a part of those people, and you then get rid of them from the town hall because they ask a question you don't like, that sounds like a First Amendment violation. So... Maybe I'm wrong here. Those of you who are listening who are good at First Amendment law, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, but it it just seems kind of wrong to me. Uh, Over in Hamilton, we have the first of a couple stories that gave rise to this particular podcast episode title, Police Chiefs Gone Wild. Here we have the Hamilton chief of police and an officer exchanging uh, racist-laden commentary that was recorded on someone's body cam, which of course gave rise to the first rule of Fiskamal. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when being recorded. From that story, it says, quote, The Hamilton chief of police and one patrolman have been asked to resign or face termination after body cam footage of them at a Black Lives Matter protest last year surfaced earlier this week. According to the assistant to Hamilton Mayor Julie Brown, Chief Gene Almond and Patrolman John Brooks have both been removed from their positions with the Hamilton Police Department Chief Almond reportedly resigned while Patrolman Brooks was terminated. It was believed that the body cameras that officers were wearing at the Black Lives Matter protest in Hamilton in June 2020 were not working properly. Earlier this week, however, someone from another department went to use the cameras and discovered the memory was full. Now, I'm going to pause here. Isn't this the most boomerish thing? You know, we talk about boomers not knowing technology. It's like, apply this to the whole fucking department. You don't think your cameras work, and the reason why is that you you just don't know what the fuck you're doing. So when someone grabs that same camera later, they discover, oh, you actually recorded evidence. Well, continues, quote, when the video was downloaded, it was determined to be footage of the protest. The assistant says the mayor and city council acted quickly to remove the chief and patrolman after viewing the video for the first time Monday. You can view the full body camera footage from the incident below. We're going to give you that particular link Uh, But let me actually embed a few samples of some of their glorious commentary. And I'm putting glorious in air quotes here because it's fucking ridiculous. What they're saying now is, we didn't have to shoot him, it's just a taser. Then how come when you tase a f***er, it's like you done killed him 27 times? That's the first one. And then they talk a bit about their sexual preferences here. And then the police chief decided to offer his commentary on how slavery worked. I don't own no slaves. My folks didn't own no slaves. Hey, I'm okay. You know, what are we talking about? 200 fucking years ago? Hey, I've been doing a... I do a lot of stuff on my family history on ancestry. And, you know, we're all from up north. But there was a small 
small branch of the family that lived in Virginia, which before the Civil War, what is West Virginia was Virginia. And I did find evidence of some slave-owning part of my family, even though we're from Ohio and didn't nobody up there. But I'm going to tell you, looking at Chris's family, holy sh**. Man, let me tell you what. She had she had a one relative, I can't remember his name. Was was he, he fought in the Civil War. After the Civil War was over with, he became a an overseer on a plantation. So he was the, in charge of all the slaves. And there was some article or something about something he did in the paper and the newspaper said that whatever his name was says he was known to be the meanest man alive. Well you know what now this I don't know if this has any merit back in the slave time. But I'm sure there was a lot of them mistreated. I, I don't have no doubt about that. But for the most part it seems to me like they furnished them a house to live in. They furnished them clothes to put on their back. They furnished them food to put on their table. And all they had to do was fucking work. And now, we give them all those things and they don't have to fucking work. That's it. Now, look, I'm not a historian by any stretch. But you know where else they furnish you clothes and food and housing and all you have to do is work? Fucking prison. If slavery was so great because they gave you food and housing and clothes, then why aren't Chief Almond and Officer Brooks volunteering to go to prison? This sort of fucking commentary, for this to be as extended, because I'm going to give you a link to the full video. The full body cam footage is, you know, several minutes long, and that's just the condensed part that the media decided to share. The actual video is even longer than that. But to be having these sorts of conversations, this fucking openly, never mind the racial slurs, which are bad enough, but just this level of abject fucking stupidity. Like, there, there's no explanation for it. And this is normal. This is commonplace. This is the chief of fucking police for a given municipality and one of his officers just shooting the shit. This is the type of stuff they randomly talk about when they don't have anything else better to do. Uh, it's absurd. So we'll give you links to it. You can check it out. And... Uh, you know, make sure to watch the whole thing if you can stomach it. Over in Louisiana, in Oberlin, we have the fifth rule of Fisk again. When people say blue lives matter, they don't mean the dark blue ones. And here, a deceased deputy was banned from being buried in a cemetery because they only sold burial plots to whites. Bear in mind, this is 2021, y'all. From that story, it says, quote, A family in Allen Parish is burying a loved one further from home because he was rejected on account of his skin color. It happened in Oakland Springs Cemetery in Oberlin. Subquote, it was just so much a slap in the face, a punch in the gut. It was just belittling him. You know that we can't bury him because he's black, said Carla Simeon. She's the widow of 55-year-old Daryl Simeon, a former Allen Parish deputy and Reeves police officer. He died Sunday after his colon cancer resurged in December and progressively overtook him. 
When Daryl's family tried to buy a burial plot Tuesday in the cemetery close to their home, only his skin color mattered. They called the Oakland Springs Cemetery and met with the woman who sold the burial plots. As Carla remembered, subquote, first me and one of my other sons got out of the car when she drove up, and he's white, and she said she was sorry for our loss, and I told her thank you. And before I could say anything else, the rest of them started coming out of the car, and she looked at them, and then she looked at me and said, we're going to have a discrepancy. We're not going to be able to sell you a plot. Since its start in the 1950s, Oakland Springs Cemetery's contract only allowed, quote, remains of white human beings. Despite the contract being signed by everyone who buys a plot, the cemetery board claims they had never noticed that provision before. Thursday, the cemetery board eliminated the word white from its contract in an emergency meeting. The woman who denied the family space no longer works for them. You know, it's, it's interesting if you look at the uh, why Oberlin is named Oberlin, it is for Johann Friedrich Oberlin, who is a German and French pastor. He's also the namesake for Oberlin, Ohio and Oberlin College. Now, if you look at Oberlin, Ohio, that area was largely respected by the black community because they became a hotbed for abolitionism back during the uh, pre-Civil War era. And then on the other side, you got this shit. So you got this one guy, two different cities bearing his name. One is recognized as a leader in trying to treat people as people. The other one is known for abject fucking racism. Going all the way into 2021, and the best they can say is, we didn't recognize, we didn't read the contract. It's absurd. Uh, over in Maryland, we have the first rule of Fisk again in Montgomery County. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when being recorded. From there, we have police harassing a five-year-old kindergartner. That story says, quote, Two Maryland police officers have been accused of screaming at, grabbing, and threatening a five-year-old elementary school student. The boy's mother, Shanta Grant, filed a lawsuit this month against Montgomery police officers Dion Holliday and Kevin Christman, as well as Montgomery County and Montgomery County Board of Education. The Maryland complaint alleges that in January 2020, the kindergartner walked off the East Silver Spring Elementary School premises when he was not being properly supervised. Officers were dispatched to the scene when school employees called police to help find him. Christman was wearing a body camera while Holiday was not, according to Grant's attorney, who obtained the footage from the incident. The officers found the boy two-tenths of a mile. I'm going to pause. Two-tenths is one-fifth. I don't know why they didn't say one-fifth of a mile. Uh, two-tenths of a mile away from the school, and after speaking to the boy for a minute, Christman, subquote, started to lose his patience and forcefully grabbed the boy's arm. Christman continued to hold the boy's arm as the boy started to cry. The boy, subquote, was scared and did not want to get into the police car. Chrisman grabbed the boy and placed him in the squad car. The complaint alleges this was extremely frightening to the boy because he thought he was going to be taken to jail. Once back at the school, sorry, that's my dog providing security in the background there. Once back at the school, the officers made statements to each other in front of the child, calling the boy bad and Holiday saying this is why people need to beat their kids. Chrisman then forced the boy into a chair, causing his crying to intensify. At that point, Holiday then yelled at the boy to shut that noise up now and got within inches of the boy's face and added, subquote, I hope your mama lets me beat you. Holiday then let out five primal screams within inches of the boy's face with the purpose of terrorizing an already traumatized and upset child. Now, they're doing this while they're wearing body cameras. These are the types of people that have absolutely no business on the force in general. But then, in addition to that, was there no one else that could have been called? You know, is there no other profession 
anywhere on God's earth capable of finding elementary school students except for police. Fire and rescue does it all the time. That's what the and rescue part of fire and rescue means. You could have sent a social worker. You could have picked some random fucking people from the community. But instead, you get the people with guns and a badge and qualified immunity and bad decisions. And they assault this child who, again, is only five. You have two grown adults and a five-year-old. Force him into a chair, get in his face and scream in front of him like, what the fuck? That is just, that's the type of shit I did when I was a child and I was trying to torment my brother and sister. When they were crying and I would mock cry back at them to piss them off. You don't do that when you're an adult. And yet you have these two people, tax-funded. Again, you pay for their hiring, you pay for their training, you pay for their equipment, you pay for their salary, you pay for their pension, you pay for the monetary judgments when they get sued for their bad decisions. And this is what you've got in Maryland. It's fucking ludicrous. Up in New York, we have another instance of the first rule of Fisk. Police will continue to do dumb shit, even when being recorded. And also, this, frankly, is a third rule as well. There are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. Where in Rochester, the Rochester police were brutalizing a nine-year-old. In this case, I'm going to quote you from the story, but it's one of those stories where the uh, evolution on Twitter from the police statement that gets repeated verbatim as media are wont to do. Uh, and then someone decided to investigate and then it became clear it was an outrage. And then more media got into it to the point where a day later, the department is backing off from their own statement. It, it, it's ridiculous. So let's start with reading this particular article which is how it came to my attention. Quote, a Rochester police officer was, subquote, required to spray a, subquote, irritant in the face of a handcuffed nine-year-old black girl sitting in the back of a police car Friday, the department announced Saturday morning. That was the initial press release, that there was a kid as part of a, uh, a family trouble call who was required to be sprayed in the face with an irritant. Okay, that got repeated verbatim by multiple outlets on Twitter at the time. This particular reporter from the Democrat and Chronicle, the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle, it is not a political affiliation. That's just what newspapers were called in a lot of parts of the country back in the day. Continues, quote, officers were called to a home on Avenue B at 3.30 p.m. Friday for family trouble involving a potentially stolen vehicle. During the call, and I'm going to note, the nine-year-old did not steal the vehicle, by the way. Uh, During the call, officers were approached by the custodial parent of a minor who told the officer she feared her daughter would harm herself and others. The child ran away from the home and was apprehended on nearby Harris Street. Subquote, the minor became agitated when she saw her custodial parent. An RPD press release stated, the child pulled away and then kicked at officers. Police said this action, subquote, required an officer to take the minor down to the ground. Then, subquote, for the minor's safety and at the request of the custodial parent on scene, the child was handcuffed and put in the back of a police car as they waited for an American medical response ambulance to arrive. Again, police said the girl refused to listen to police and disobeyed multiple commands to put her feet in the car. Subquote, this required an officer to use an irritant on the minor, police said. The department did not release any requirements or policies that highlighted the need to react in this manner. When asked to provide the policies that required the use of an irritant, 
Rochester Police Captain Mark Murrah said, The incident is under review at this time. We will comment on this question after all BWC video and procedures have been reviewed. Uh, story gives more background. Then says, quote, The use of pepper spray on minors is considered more dangerous to children. Subquote, Any chemicals in your eyes, nose, or lungs is not good, but it's especially worrisome for kids because their organs are still developing. Pervy S. Parikh, an immunologist who specializes in pediatric health at New York University Langone Health, said in an interview with North Carolina Health News. Subquote, It has the potential of causing long-term effects. The child was taken to Rochester General Hospital under the state's mental hygiene law, subquote, where she received the services and care that she needed. The girl was treated and released to her family. Murray said a total of nine officers and supervisors were on scene for the incident, but he did not comment on if any of the officers have been assigned to desk duty pending the outcome of the internal investigation. Now, before we get into any of these subsequent developments, let's break this down. Nine cops on scene. Nine grown adults. A nine-year-old child is handcuffed in a patrol car. And someone made the decision that they thought mace in the face would be appropriate. Now, this, of course, caused more people to make inquiries. And then the video got released, which, of course, is worse than the story. At one point, the officer goes, you're acting like a kid. I'm oh, sorry, you're acting like a child. And the child responds, I am a child. No shit. And then there are two officers trying to put this girl in the car. One of them's egging on the other officer to pepper spray her. Telling her, geez, just go ahead and stop wasting time and pepper spray her now. And then in one of the subsequent developments, as everyone is focused on this requirement to spray an irritant in the kid's face, finally the police chief comes out and says, I'm not going to tell you that it's required to spray a child in the face with pepper spray. That was a quote. Now, there are only really two scenarios here. Either one, the police chief knew that press statement was bullshit before it was sent, in which case the chief ratified it and should be fired. Or two, the police chief didn't know it was bullshit when it was sent, but has a culture in the department where saying bullshit like that is okay, in which case they should be fired and someone new put in place. You can't reform shit like this. You know, I, I've, I've never been on the side of the abolish all police people because I recognize in a society of laws, you need someone to enforce the laws. But this type of shit is unreformable. To have nine cops on site for a call, brutalizing a nine-year-old because they can't get the girl's kid's feet in the car. Jesus, fuck, she's handcuffed. It's not like she can do shit. She's not pivoting on her ass in the car. Just pick up her legs, move them. Problem solved. Pepper spray is not fucking necessary. Uh, over in North Carolina, in Boiling Spring Lakes, this is a new story on an old murder. This actually happened several years ago, back in 2014. But it, again, highlights how police deal with folks who have mental health problems. That is what prompted this particular story to come back up because of that killing in Texas that I mentioned. So from that story, it's a bit of a long read. I'm going to give you a few extended quotes. Bear in mind, though, that this happened back in 2014. The story says, quote, Mary Wilsey had been confined to her home on the North Carolina coast for about a week, spending almost every moment monitoring her 18-year-old son, who was suicidal. Other than leaving the room to use the bathroom, she stayed by her son's side. Her son, Keith Vidal, had been diagnosed with schizophrenia and was in a mental health crisis. 
She tried to have him hospitalized on December 27th of 2014, but a nurse turned him away after telling her that he wasn't having thoughts about harming himself or others. Wilsey knew the nurse was lying. She found a suicide note. Just over a week later, with no change in her son's behavior, the family turned to the police to ensure Vidal would get treatment. Instead, an officer shot Vidal dead in his home. On the morning of January 5th, 2014, Wilsey had just returned from a grocery store run. She said her son did not recognize her. Wilsey's husband, Vidal's stepfather, called 911. Two officers responded. One had been to the home a few days earlier to try to take Vidal to the hospital for a medication adjustment and was already familiar with his situation. Officer John Thomas from the small Boiling Spring Lakes Police Department and Samantha Lewis Chavis, a deputy with the Brunswick County Sheriff's Office, were both patient with Vidal, who was holding a small screwdriver. They attempted to de-escalate the situation by asking him if they could take him to the hospital to adjust his medication. They also asked him how he was feeling and tried to talk with him. Vidal, who was experiencing severe paranoia, was standing in the hallway, demanding that the officers leave the house. After about five minutes, a third officer, Detective Brian Vazzi of the nearby Southport Police Department, came through the front door wearing plain clothes. He didn't identify himself, Wilsey said. Subquote, I didn't even know who he was. I didn't even know he was a cop, she told Insider. He took approximately eight steps to reach Samantha Chavis and then said, I don't have time for this shit. Lewis Chavis later testified in court that Vazzi did, in fact, say something along those lines. Vidal ran into the bathroom. When he came out, Lewis Chavis, Lewis, not Luis, Lewis Chavis, used her stun gun at Vazzi's request and Vidal fell to the ground. Thomas climbed on top of him to take him into custody. Lewis Chavis was also trying to get the situation under control. Vazzi, the officer who didn't have time for this shit, fired 14 seconds after Lewis Chavis stunned Vidal. Lewis Chavis testified in 2016 at his trial. Vidal had been struck in the armpit, the bullet pierced both of his lungs, and he died soon after, according to his mother and medical officials. From the time Vazzy arrived at Wilsey's home to when he alerted the station that he had discharged his weapon, only 70 seconds had passed. A minute and 10 seconds. Subquote, he blew Officer Chavis's eardrum out. He could have shot the other officer in the head. All of this is taking place in a three-foot hallway, Wilsey said. He put those officers in danger, and he hurt one of them, all because he didn't have time for this shit. Vazzy was eventually charged with voluntary manslaughter. He was acquitted in a bench trial in 2016. Now, a few notes. Now, these are, these are not recent. These are from past things that I have looked up as part of the podcast. In 2015, from departments that made the records available, police records indicated that about 25% of the people who were shot by police were experiencing a mental health crisis. Now, the Washington Post updated some of those numbers as of mid-October. That figure was still 20%. So out of five police shootings, one of them is someone in mental distress. And those are just the departments that report the data and actually track it. Bear in mind, most do not. Separately, a 2015 study by the Treatment Advocacy Center found that the risk of being killed by law enforcement for people who have an untreated mental illness, which is about 1 in 50 people, the likelihood they're going to be killed was 16 times higher than the risk for everybody else. It is insane how we deal with the mentally ill in this country. We have the government exterminate them. That is basically how it works. 
Uh, over in Durham, we had a woman jailed for petty theft, and instead she got a death sentence. That is part of the third rule of Fisk Mall. Uh, there are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. From that story, it says, quote, When Brittany Cottrell arrived in Durham two years ago to beat her heroin habit, she weighed 150 pounds. So, quote, she stayed with me, her grandmother Sylvia Taylor told the Indy this week. She told me, Grandma, I'm coming home to get clean. That was the talk all the time. When Cottrell died last week while in the custody of the county jail, she was still battling that addiction. Her grandmother said she weighed less than 100 pounds. Police accused Cottrell of taking cigarettes, food, and $15 from the North Durham apartment that she shared with a romantic partner. Arrest warrants also stated that Cottrell threatened him with a knife and claimed his life was endangered. So she was booked into the Durham County Jail in lieu of a $100,000 bond, eventually reduced to $5,000 after her first court appearance. Sheriff's officials said this week that Cottrell's cause of death had not been determined and will be released by the state medical examiner once available. But Taylor said the day before her granddaughter died, a nurse at the detention center told her that her 34-year-old granddaughter was quarantined in the medical part of the jail and had tested positive for COVID-19. Taylor also spoke this week with a jailer who told her Cottrell had been spitting up dark blood before she collapsed on the day she died. Arrest should not be a death sentence. Remember that most of the people in jail have not actually been convicted of a crime. Jail is for people who've been convicted of offenses where you get less than a year, but it's also for holding people who are awaiting trial. They are innocent until proven guilty. You should not be dying in a jail. And yet here we are over in Wake County in Raleigh, just south of Durham. We have the third rule of Fisk again. There are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. From that story, it says, quote, A detention officer at the downtown Raleigh jail was arrested during his shift on charges of providing contraband to inmates. Rodelay Pippin, or Rodale, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, Pippin, 31, was charged with giving or selling a cell phone or electronic device to an inmate and conspiracy to provide a cellular device to an inmate, both of which are felonies as well as giving or selling tobacco or a vapor product to an inmate, which is a misdemeanor, according to a news release from the Wake County Sheriff's Office. Pippin was arrested after a two-month investigation. The Sheriff's Office arrested him Tuesday during his shift at the detention facility in the John H. Baker Jr. Public Safety Center on Salisbury Street. Now, I'm going to note, this is normal. Jailers being arrested for providing contraband is normal. It happens all the time. The Prison Policy Initiative actually had a piece two years ago. I'm going to give you a link to it in the show notes that notes that jailers, sheriff's office staff, cops in jails, are far and away the number one source of jail contraband. They're eliminating in-person visits. If you have a family member incarcerated, you can't see them in person because of security concerns. They're going to make you pay to do these televisits. When in fact, the security concerns are their own staff. The call's coming from inside the house, or in this case, inside the jail. So that is in North Carolina. Over in Ohio, we have this bizarre fucking story where the police have issued a press release talking about saving women from human trafficking by arresting them in Columbus. The story says, quote, eight women were rescued and arrested following a recent human trafficking operation in Ohio. That's the first sentence. Rescued and arrested. The Central Ohio Human Trafficking Task Force, part of the Ohio Attorney General's Organized Crime Investigations Commission, as well as the New Albany Police Department and other law enforcement partners, conducted a one-day sting Wednesday that intercepted eight women engaging in prostitution. So, quote, arresting the people who are the victims 
victims of human trafficking sounds harsh, but the complicated reality is that this is often the best way that law enforcement can help, said Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost. The bonds of human trafficking are often chemical chains of addiction and a hopelessness that there is no other way. This gives the survivors a chance to reset with services that are available. Number one, this is total bullshit. Addicts should never be arrested because you don't really get treatment in jail. You just go through forced detox. Okay, that's that's the first point. Second, agree or disagree about sex work, fine. If you want to criminalize it, cool. If you want to legalize it, cool. None of that shit matters. The reality is that based on the data, nearly everybody engaged in prostitution is not trafficked. Human trafficking is a bona fide problem, but most people who are doing prostitution are not that. And it's never, ever beneficial to tag somebody with the collateral consequences of arrest, being printed, being mugshotted, having the shit on the internet where it can't be taken down unless you get an expungement, because it makes it harder for them to get hired at other jobs, increasing the likelihood they go back to sex work because they can't find something else to make money. That's point three. Point four, Jesus Christ, look at the return on investment for this. You have the task force, you have the New Albany Police Department, you have other law enforcement partners, all of these people on a one-day sting, let's assume that one day is only an eight-hour shift and not the actual full 24 hours, all of those personnel, and you only arrest eight people? What the fuck are you spending taxpayer money on that that's all you can come up with? What other crimes could you have solved had you put that attention to murderers, rapists, child molesters, any of a bazillion other fucking crimes instead of wasting it on this public relations bullshit. It's absurd. So that is in Ohio. Over in Texas, we have two different cases. The first is in Killeen. Uh, the first rule of Fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. This is the homicide that I mentioned earlier in the podcast. From that story, it says, quote, newly released body cam footage of a police officer fatally shooting a black man during a mental health check has been released on Tuesday. And the chief of police in Killeen, Texas, is defending the officer's actions. Killeen police officer Reynaldo Contreras shot Patrick Warren Sr., 52, after police received a call requesting psychiatric help on January 10th. As previously mentioned by The Grio, Warren's family requested a mental health professional to be sent to the home. Instead, Contreras arrived and, subquote, encountered an emotionally distressed man who he was not prepared to handle, said Lee Merritt, the civil rights attorney who is representing the family. The police department said in a statement that Contreras found Warren in a state of emotional distress upon his arrival at a home in the 1600 block of Carrollton Avenue in Killeen, and the body cam video shows the tense moments that led to Contreras firing his weapon at Warren three different times. According to CNN, the video shows Contreras letting himself into the home after he is told by someone inside to, subquote, come on in. Contreras quickly exits after Warren begins to yell and advance towards him. Now I'm going to note, Warren is unarmed. So he's yelling, he's advancing, but he doesn't have a weapon. Warren can be seen outside a residence advancing toward Contreras in the front yard and ignoring verbal commands for him to lie down. After the officer steps backwards and continues to issue warnings like you're going to get tased, he uses the taser on Warren before deploying his firearm. I, the, the, the voice choices, the wording choices on these things is hilarious. He deployed his firearm. He shot the guy. He pulled his gun and fired. 
Killeen Police Chief Charles Kimball said, subquote, I don't see where he could have done anything else. I saw an officer try to handle a call, de-escalate a call. Given the same set of circumstances, I just don't know what else we could do. Here's what you could do. You could not fucking shoot unarmed people, especially people when you're dealing with them in response to a mental health call. Again, this type of shit cannot be reformed. We have created this culture where police can fucking murder anybody with absolutely no consequences. And then we have the police chief come out and say, oh, I just can't imagine what else we could have done differently. Don't pull your fucking gun. Don't shoot someone who is unarmed. Call for backup. Call someone who has experience in dealing with mental health like the family fucking requested in the first place. You don't have to kill them. If you believe that life is precious, you know, this is the thing. Republicans are good for talking about, oh, I believe in life. I'm opposed to abortion. Everyone's God's child, blah, blah, blah. Until it comes to them being shot dead by police. And then they bend over backwards to find a fucking excuse for why it's okay. It's disgusting. Uh, finally, over in Stinnett. This story is is just wow. So this is the second police chief gone wild story. Uh, and it started on Facebook and then went viral. So the story I'm giving you is the media covering it after the fact, but watching it flower in real time, if you will, was insane. From that story, it says, quote, On Tuesday, an Amarillo woman named Cecily Steinmetz posted to Facebook saying she was engaged to Jason Collier before she learned he was married. Steinmetz's original post has gone viral, shared tens of thousands of times, even internationally. KAMR spoke with Steinmetz, who alleged Collier sent her a fake annulment document. Steinmetz said the photo of an annulment document below is from Collier, which she included in her Facebook post. We'll give you a link so you can see it. The document Steinmetz provided to MyHighPlains.com, which is the website for KAMR, claims to be filed in the 108th District Court. Judge Doug Woodburn presides over that court, so we reached out to him and shared with him the photo of the annulment document Steinmetz claimed Collins sent to her. Collier, not Collins, Collier. Uh, Subquote, no match exists under that name or cause number. Our cause numbers are completely different, consisting of a zero followed by six numbers, starting in a seven or eight, Judge Woodburn said via text message on Thursday. My court is followed by the letter E. This document is a fake. Collier was placed on administrative leave on Wednesday while the city of Stinnett investigates possible violations of city employment policy. Collier is the city of Stinnett police chief. Collier was arrested Thursday. Texas Department of Public Safety Sergeant Cindy Barkley said on Tuesday that the Hutchinson County District Attorney's Office asked the Texas Rangers to conduct a criminal investigation into Collier. Sergeant Barkley said Collier was charged with tampering with a government document with the intent to defraud a state jail felony. She said Collier's bond was set at $10,000. Collier, who previously worked as a detective with the Pampa Police Department, was awarded the Medal of Valor by the state of Texas in 2016. Now, that's the story. We'll give you a link. You can see the documents. But as part of the subsequent investigation, it has come out that this guy is married. He's got a wife. He has at least two fiancés in addition to that wife. He has at least nine, probably more, girlfriends in addition to the two fiancés and the wife. He's a cop. And he's going to prison for fabricating evidence. Out of all that shit, ignore the fact that he's a cheater, a lout, and so on. He's going to jail because he faked evidence. If that's not on brand, I don't know what is. Uh, So that is the state-by-state criminal justice fuckery this week. Every now and again, we do cover stuff in other countries. In this case, we are in Hong Kong, China, where this story is just, yeah. It's a gross story, but at the same time, it's... 
it's very different from how we do things here in America. So from that story, it says, quote, a Hong Kong court sentenced a 35-year-old police officer to 46 months in jail for sexually assaulting six girls aged 11 to 14 during 2017 and 2018. Yu Chun Hing, a police officer in the Narcotics Bureau, admitted to eight charges, including indecent assault, intercourse with a girl under 16, and possessing child pornography in December last year, and received his jail sentence at the district court on Wednesday. Between 2017 and 2018, Officer Yu used social media platforms to chat with underage girls online and sexually assaulted them after he asked to meet. He was arrested in June 2018 but was granted bail. He then molested another 14-year-old girl while he was on bail last year. District Judge Timothy Casewell said the age difference between you and his victims was considerable, and the number of victims and frequency of offenses were also aggravating circumstances. Casewell added that while you used the internet to attract his victims, he did not use his status as a police officer, and hence his identity as an officer was not a reason for a harsher prison sentence. There's a lot to unpack here. Okay, first, this is a common thing in America. I mean, we've talked before about Kitty Diddlers on the police force all over the country. It happens all the time. You can find them in our archives. Here, the police would just get paid leave, and there probably wouldn't be any criminal charges at all. But then you look at the stuff going on in Hong Kong, the pro-liberty dissidents there are getting decades in prison for opposing the government. This guy sexually assaults multiple kids, and you know he only gets 46 months. So it's just... The whole system is fucked up, not just here, but everywhere. It's, it's absurd. Uh, so, folks, that is going to do it for the criminal justice fuckery this week. Uh, as always, thank you for being loyal listeners. You are truly appreciated. I did not mention during the beginning of the podcast, I don't think, uh, if you can, join the conversation online. Our website is fiscamall.com. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash fisk, and you can follow our Twitter account at fiscamall, at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. Uh, I just want to do thank yous to our show note sponsors, Anon, Trey Benfield, Ian Booth, Mary Jo Gustafson, Colleen Mahaney, Neil Richmond, Ari Rutenberg, and Michael Teal, as well as our Law and 40 lovers, Lindsay Bowser, Casey Carmody, Erica Phillips, Helen Poston, and Joe Sevitz. The music that you hear, our glorious bumper music, is the track Drinks on Me by DJ Carolina's Finest. So I hope all of you stay home, stay safe, wash your hands, don't catch the Rona, don't get black bagged by the feds. We will talk to you next week. Y'all take care. Mm-hmm.